Amen. Love that song. Well, thank you again for joining us to worship the Lord this morning. Uh, this morning, we're going to be continuing our series uh, through the book of Galatians, still in Galatians chapter 5, um, so I invite you to turn there. Um, but as we do, I'm going to uh, pray for us one more time as we get started this morning. Lord, thank you for today. Thank you for your love for us, which is so kind, so free, so undeserved. Lord, the word says we love because you first loved us. And so I pray today, O oh Lord, that you would show us what Christian love is. That we may embrace it, believe it, obey it. That it would characterize our lives that the world may know the one who is love. So teach us today, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Yep. A, uh, a famous song of yesteryear, which you may or may not have heard of, asked a very profound question. A question that the, the way you answer it deeply affects the way that you live and think of in this world. And the question that song asked is this. What is love? What is love? And if you remember the song, if you know the song that I'm talking about, this question is followed by a strong and earnest plea. It goes something like this. What is love? Baby, don't hurt me. Don't hurt me no more. Well, the band Hadaway really had no idea of the profundity of their little song. Because, you see, it's, it's quite true, actually, that if you don't know what love is, it can be really painful. It can really hurt you. And love, you know, is at the very heart of Christianity. But we live in an age where the world itself has been hijacked and redefined. You know, in, in Greek, they had a few different words for love. Other languages, I believe, are similar. In English, we have one word for love. We say we love uh, fried chicken. We say we love our cat. We say we love our, our mom. Uh, I'm assuming we mean different things when we say the word love in each of those circumstances. But we just have one word. So how you define that one word is really important. And for many today, love is just simply affirming whatever people feel is right, whatever feels right to us at the moment, whatever we think will make, the most, will make people the most happy in this time, in this age, in this world. But we as Christians don't really have the freedom, and not just Christians, but everyone in reality do not have the freedom uh, to define love however we want, because I would say God gets to define love. And he gets to define love because the Bible said God is love. So if we really want to know what love is, and I believe we do, I believe people do. I believe the reason for a lot of the pain and confusion, as Hathaway sung about, is because they confuse something else with love and it becomes very painful. And so the question I want to ask today, we want to ask 
today. We want to ask God, what is Christian love? So, um, we're going to read again from Galatians chapter 5. So if you're able and willing, please stand in honor of the word of God. And we are again, uh, for context, going to read beginning in verse 16 through verse 24. Paul says, But I say, walk by the Spirit, and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the Spirit, and the desires of the Spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other, to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the Spirit, you are not under law. Now, the works of the flesh are evident. Sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law. And those who belong to Christ Jesus have crucified the flesh with its passions and desires. The word of God. You may be seated. So, we're beginning this morning to talk about the fruit of the Spirit. We've talked about the works of the flesh And Paul contrasts these with the fruit of the Spirit. So, the first thing we see here is that the Spirit is the source of the fruit. The Spirit is the source of the fruit. So, think about the analogy that Paul is using. Paul calls these things the fruit of the Spirit. Now, Paul uses this analogy intentionally because... and. You know, down here, not so much, but in other parts of of America and of the world, especially in our modern day, we often tend to think of things mechanically. You know, you push a button and this happens. But that's not the analogy that Paul uses. Paul doesn't use a mechanical analogy. Paul uses an uh, agricultural analogy, an organic analogy. That is that the fruit of the Spirit is not... It's not things that we push a button to just produce. And neither is it individual like patches, as it were, that we can add to our Christian uniform once we have accomplished them. Rather, it's fruit. That is, that these things, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. These things are are things that grow inside of us by the power of of the Holy Spirit. And by definition, things that grow do so almost imperceptibly. I don't know about you, but I I can't keep up with my yard. The grass just grows too fast. Okay, it's really aggravating. If I... And so I just said the grass grows too fast. Well, if I get on my hands and knees and watch the grass... I cannot see it grow as fast as it indeed is growing. I can't see it grow. Things that grow almost by definition do so imperceptibly. But guess what? Two weeks down the road, if you hadn't touched your grass, it's out of control. That's how the Christian life is. 
when you pursue God, you don't feel it, but years down the road, you look back and you say, my goodness, I'm not the same person I used to be. Hopefully everyone in this room can say that. It's organic. It's the fruit of the Spirit. And not only is it fruit that's grown in us, but it's the fruit of the Spirit. That is that it comes from God's Holy Spirit. So Paul is not here giving us a... Sometimes it's easy to look at this list and think of it as a to-do list, okay? I got to love today. I got to be joyful today. I got to be patient and peaceful and, and kind and good and faithful today. Well, that's not wrong, but that's not really what Paul's talking about. He is saying that if you think... Look, look at them. Look at them. They're not activities as much as they're qualities. Look at them. Think about them. They're not actions to do as much as they are virtues to become. God, Paul is not essentially saying do loving acts, although he wants us to do that. What Paul is saying is be a loving person. He's saying not just be a, don't just uh, ex- visibly express joy, but he says be a joyful person. He's not just telling us what to do. He's telling us what to be and what to become. And these things, Paul says, are grown in our hearts by the power of the Holy Spirit. That is, it's not just something that you can muster up on your own. It's something that God works in you as he changes your life. Think about it. If it was just something that you could muster up the own stri- your own strength and energy to do then everybody would do it. Everybody would be loving, and they're not. Everybody would be joyful, and they're not. Everybody would be peaceful and patient and kind and good and faithful and gentle and exercise self-control, but they don't. In other words, these things, the fruit of the Spirit, they're not natural to sinful people. They're not natural. They're supernatural. They're wrought by the Spirit of God in our hearts. And they are cultivated in our lives. And they grow. Christianity, you see, is a heart religion. It's a change of heart before it is a change of behavior. Because Jesus says it's not, it's not what goes into you that defiles you, but what comes out that defiles you. So Jesus is not trying to... Jesus is not trying to change the water that's flowing. He's trying to change the fountain that's inside of you. And to tie this in to the whole book of Galatians, what Paul is arguing is that this was the weakness, this was the weakness of the old covenant. This was the weakness of the law. If, if, we, if we're going to tie this into the whole book of Galatians, how does this fit of what we've been talking about over the past several months about the law? This was one of the weaknesses. The law told us how to live, but it gave us no power to obey. The law said this is what love looks like. The Ten Commandments said this is what love looks like, but it gave us no, it gave us no power to obey them. We had no strength, no change of heart to do them. That's why... The Old Testament and the prophets proclaimed that a day would come in which God would give a new covenant. In which he would not just 
show us what love is, but he would give us the power to become loving people. In fact, he would make us loving people. Ezekiel chapter 36, verse 25. Ezekiel prophesies of the new covenant. He says, I will sprinkle clean water on you, and you shall be clean from all your uncleannesses. From all your idols I will cleanse you, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and to be careful to obey my rules. You see? Christ done what the law couldn't do. And that is, he gives you a heart transplant. He takes out your old heart and puts in a new one. That's what conversion is. That's how a person becomes a Christian. They're they're filled with the Holy Spirit and changed by the power of God. In fact, several Sundays ago uh, was Pentecost Sunday, which, you know, Baptists don't really follow the liturgical calendar that much. But historically, it's the Sunday that we would remember Pentecost. Which, by the way, is an important thing to remember. Because without the Holy Spirit, there is no Christianity. Because it's by the Spirit. Remember, the disciples were, were, were uh, afraid and they were cowards. And Jesus told them to go to proclaim the gospel to all nations. And they were in a locked room in Jerusalem. Till the Holy Spirit came. Like a flame of fire and changed them. And so, what we need is the Spirit of God. You know, before Jesus was crucified and rose from the dead, he was teaching his disciples in John chapter 16. And this is what he told them He says, I tell you the truth, it is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the helper will not come to you. But if I go, I will send him to you. You see what Jesus is saying? He's saying the Holy Spirit in you is better than Jesus Christ beside you. If you can believe that. It is better that God comes and enters inside you and change you from the heart than to see Jesus visibly. Because that's what we need more than anything. So as we as Christians, what we need to do is we must cultivate space for the Holy Spirit to work in our lives. In other words, we these the fruit of the Spirit is worked in our lives by God, but that doesn't mean that we just sit back and do nothing. Think about it. You know, many of you have planted gardens, you know how it works. You don't just say, Oh, I'm 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 gonna I want some corn, I want some tomatoes, I want some okra, so I'm just not going to do anything this year. What do you do? You go till the ground. You sow some seeds. You put some fertilizer out there, but guess what? You can't make a seed grow. You can't. But you still still till the ground. You still throw out the fertilizer, you still sow the seed. And that's what it's like. That's what the Christian life is like. We, we don't have the power to change ourselves. 
But what we can do is we can till the soil of our lives. We can throw on the fertilizer of God's word, of fellowship with his people, of praying together with other people. And what we'll do then, if, if we throw ourselves into Christ, throw ourselves into wor- his word, throw ourselves into God's community of people, you know what you will be doing? You will be making your heart so fertile ground for the spirit of God that it can't not grow. And so while we can't do it, we make space, we cultivate our lives so that the spirit of God can grow these graces in our heart and in our lives. We make ourselves pliable to the spirit's leading. We make ourselves yield to the teaching of God's word. And so we, we fill our lives with these things. The, the body of Christ, getting involved in church, getting involved in some kind of small group or Sunday school, praying, prayer meeting on Wednesday nights. Come and pray with us. You're going to be blessed, I'm telling you. Filling your mind with truth. Guarding what goes into your mind. We're going to talk about this a, a few weeks from now. But Paul says, whatever you sow, that shall you reap. If you fill your head with garbage, what do you think is going to come out? You're in control of what you watch, what you listen to, what you absorb. And so we're, we're cultivating our hearts for God by the power of the Spirit. Romans 8, 5, and 6 says, Those who live according to their flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh. But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death. But to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. It's up here. What you think about matters. What you set your mind on matters. Uh, Roman, uh, Galatians 6, 8, which we'll get to in a little bit. Uh, a few weeks, it says, For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the spirit will from the spirit reap eternal life. And so we humble ourselves and we seek God with our whole heart and we fill our lives with his truth and with his word and with the community of the saints and getting involved in people's lives and praying together and loving one another and, ex- and exposing ourselves and our flaws and our problems to other people. We can have other godly people speak truth into our lives. And as we do, we're cultivating our souls to make it fertile ground for God to work. And so this is what the fruit of the Spirit is, and this is how God does it. And so now I'm going to spend the rest of the sermon talking about the very first fruit of the Spirit, and that is love. I think, I don't know if there's a certain progression in this list of the fruit of the Spirit, but I do think that love comes first for a reason, because I I do believe it's the most important. Love is the heart and soul of Christianity. The essence of what it means to be a Christian is love, so we can't get this wrong. Jesus said, Matthew 22, he was asked, Teacher, what's the great commandment in the law? He said to them, You shall love the Lord your God 
with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your mind. This is the great and first commandment. And the second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. Think about it. The law and the prophets was everything that a Jew was supposed to believe, do, and be. And Jesus says, if you want to be all that God wants you to be, you have to do just one thing. Love. That's it. Love. Love God. Love people. Jesus again put it this way in John 15. He said, this is my commandment. That you love one another as I have loved you. You see, he's talking to his disciples before the, uh, during, during the time of the Last Supper. The Lord's Supper, right before his crucifixion. And he's telling them, it's, it's, it's like he's summarizing everything that he's taught them up to this point. And he says, if you do one thing, if one thing that will summarize everything that I've taught you for the past three years, it's this. Love one another. We have to learn to love one another. And unfortunately, the church at times can be known for precisely not loving one another. We must learn to love one another. So I'm going to give you a definition of love, and then I'm going from the scriptures to explain that definition. And that's, that's what we're going to do the rest of the time. So, what is my definition of love? It is this. Love is the unyielding posture of heart to be for the eternal good of another, even at the expense of oneself. I'm going to read it again. Love is the unyielding posture of heart to be for the eternal good of another, even at the expense of oneself. So I'm going to explain this definition to you. First, a posture of heart. Love is a posture of heart. In 1 Corinthians chapter 13, Paul says that love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. So think about that that verse. It says love is patient and kind. It is not envy or boast. It is not arrogant. What Paul is saying here is that Just like we've been talking about, love can and must be expressed by loving actions. But if it does not truly characterize our heart, then we don't really have love. In other words, it's possible at times to externally show things that may look like patience and kindness. But if those things are not flowing from a heart that actually is patient and actually is kind, then it's not love. That's why I say that love is not just actions, although it must be those things, but it first is a posture of the heart. Jesus is very clear about this. Jesus taught that unrighteous anger is murder. Jesus taught that lusting after someone in your heart is adultery. It's adultery. In other words... In other words, not just the action itself, but the very attitude that you have is what determines whether you're a loving person or not. 
You might can say, well, I've never, you know, I've never murdered somebody or I've never committed adultery. I'm a loving person. Not according to the Bible. Not automatically. Because it's not just what externally happens, but it's, but is your heart for people? In other words, God calls us to more than just not hurting our neighbor. God calls us to be for our neighbor. There's a difference. The Spirit produces more than just being able to control our vindictiveness and anger, but He actually gives us a heart to be for that person. Someone may wound and hurt me by something they say or do, and I might, I might not go and, and try to start a brawl with them in their front yard. Okay, I might not do that, but it doesn't mean I love the person. But what the Spirit does, by the, through the command of Jesus Christ and by the power of the Spirit, Jesus says, love your enemies. Bless those who, who curse you and persecute you. Pray for them. Oh, that's different than just not hurting them. It's blessing them. That's the love that Jesus is talking about. It's an actual change of heart to be for them, even when they've wounded you, even when they've hurt you. It's actual heart feelings of affection. Now, when someone wounds you and someone hurts you, your natural reaction isn't to love them. And if you say it is, you're lying. <laughs> what does it mean? It means we need the Holy Spirit at work in our lives. It means we need something supernatural. At work in us. You know what? Jesus. On the cross. Said father forgive them. For they know not what they do. And so the love of the spirit. Actually changes us. Not just not hurting people. But actually being for. Other people. Actual heart that is for them. If they are in sin, it's a heart that grieves for them that they, in their sin, are destroying their lives, destroying their relationships, and will ultimately destroy themselves eternally. It's compassion, even, for those who wound and hurt us. Because if they don't repent, they will pay for their sins. And we don't want that to happen because we don't want to pay for our sins. And so love then is the posture of the heart. It's not just the posture of the heart, but next, it is an unyielding posture of the heart, I said. Love is an unyielding posture of the heart. This comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 13, verse 7. Paul says, love bears all things, believes all things, Hopes all things, endures all things. So love is an unyielding posture of the heart. Love, then, is not contingent, is not dependent upon the lovability of the object. You know, In our marriage vows, we say, for better or for worse, till death do us part. 
But unfortunately, a lot of people, it seems, say, you know, they really mean for better. Till it gets worse. But love, Paul says, is an unyielding posture of the heart. That is, it's a commitment to love even when they don't deserve it. That's, that's precisely when we must love the most. And we must love that way. Why? Because that's how God loved us. If God waited till we were lovable to save us, we would all be going to hell. We cannot, we cannot, if we are saved by Christ, then we cannot say, I'll love you when you deserve it. Jesus said, Jesus taught us to pray, uh, Lord, forgive me my debts as I forgive others their debts. You ready for God to hold you to that? That's how God, if God didn't bear all things, if God's love didn't endure all things, if God's love didn't believe all things and hope all things, we couldn't be saved. And it's precisely when God loved us in spite of our unlovableness. That he changes us to actually make us loving people. We love because he first loved us. Love is the unyielding posture of heart. Unyielding posture of heart for the eternal good of another. Love is the unyielding posture of heart. Next, for the eternal good of another. This is... This may be one of the most important things I say. 2 Timothy chapter 2, verses 8 through 10. Paul says, Remember Jesus Christ, risen from the dead, the offspring of David, as preached in my gospel, for which I am suffering, bound with chains as a criminal. But the word of God is not bound. Therefore, I endure everything for the sake of the elect that they also may obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. That they may also obtain the salvation that is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. Christian, Christian love, if it is to be truly loving, must be for not just the good of other people, but the eternal good of other people. And there is a difference. According to modern definitions, there is a difference. That is, and this is hard now, it's very tempting to love people by just simply trying to make them as happy as possible. In other words, The way that this world often defines love is that I will do for them whatever is going to make them happiest. So if my kid thinks that eating 29 popsicles right before bed is going to make them happy, you know, I love them. What's a man to do? I love them. That's not what love is. In fact, if we understand the Bible correctly, and if reality is the way it is as the Bible describes it, 
than to, to love people in such a way that just bl- to blindly embrace whatever they think would make them happy might actually be unloving. Because if what they, if they think will make them happy is uh, an attitude or sin or behavior that's going to actually lead to their eternal destruction and not salvation, it would be unloving to affirm them in that. And so, that doesn't mean you've got to be a jerk about it. I hope you're not. Please don't be. You should be weeping tears over it because you love them. But love does not mean, then, that we just blindly embrace everything that someone might think will make them happy. What good, what kind of love is it for somebody if you make another person as happy as they can possibly be for the next 60, 70, 80, 90 years and they die and go to hell? You've you've loved them and you've made them happy straight to hell. And you have not loved them. Now I'm not, of course I'm not saying... That we never, especially, I'm not saying that we don't meet people's needs. We don't, um, we don't provide for other people. We don't help other people in earthly ways. That's not what I'm saying at all. But what I am saying is that the way, the, the character with which we love people must have their eternal good in view and not just their temporal good. If it's not, then we're not really loving. You know? You know, when you're a parent, you know, a, a fun time of the year is Christmas because you like to see the excitement on your kid's face when, you, when they give them stuff. And that's great. I'm not saying that's bad. But hear me now. I can make my child really happy on Christmas by giving them all kinds, more toys than they can play with, than they know what to do with, that they'll forget about in a couple weeks. Really, really happy on Christmas Day. But look, if they spend their whole life now and every Christmas they think it's about them and they never meet the Christ of Christmas, it doesn't matter how happy I've made them. It doesn't matter. And so if we love our children, we must care, we must, we must love them enough to... To say not, how can I make my child happiest today, but how can I make my child the happiest a thousand years from now? That's what we need to, we must care. Love is the unyielding posture of heart to be for the eternal good of others. And oftentimes that will mean, and it should mean, you know, Giving gifts and being kind and being nice in that way, but if that's all it is, it's not love. Because we care about the eternal good and not just the temporal good of others, we'll be kind, helpful, loving, meet their needs, and we will tell them urgently the truth about Jesus Christ. John Piper put it this way, The heart of Christian love wrought by the Spirit is love for God and man. This love... Oh, no, I'm reading something else. Sorry. Okay, sorry. John Piper put it this way. Christians care about all suffering, especially eternal suffering. 
or else they have a defective heart or a flameless hell. And so we care. We care. Really care. So love is the unyielding posture of heart to be for the eternal good of another, even at the expense of oneself. That's the last part. Even at the expense of one's self. Hear me now. Because of sin, because of sin, there can be no love without self-sacrifice. That is, you cannot truly love someone without denying yourself. Even in the most, even in the most simplest and most trivial ways, this is true. For example, let's just say you have a friend or a coworker or a spouse, and they do this one thing that just kills you. It's your pet peeve. It just gets on your nerves, and you just can't stand it. You can't love that person without getting over yourself. Just get over it. Even love in the most trivial sense, because we live in a sinful world, requires a denial of yourself. A dying to yourself. And that's, Jesus, that's what Jesus said is, in fact, the essence of Christianity. Whoever must follow me, whoever, whoever must be my disciple must take up his cross, deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. Self-denial is the essence of Christianity, and it's the essence of love. Peter said that love covers a multitude of sins. We can't, we can't love people that are different than us unless we die to ourselves. It's just impossible. It's just not going to happen. We have to learn. Jesus, of course, is the ultimate example of this because he denied himself the full rights of deity to come be crucified by his sinful creatures. He denied himself to love others. And that's how we must love too. So if we're constantly going about and demanding our rights and demanding it our way, you can't love. You can't love. Jesus, my goodness, Jesus came down, and if anyone could have said, I'm having it my way, it would have been Jesus. And you know what? He wouldn't be wrong for doing it because he made everything. But Jesus came down, and the one person who actually legitimately could have said, I want it my way, he looked up to heaven and said, not my will be done, but thy will be done. You know what he did? He took off his clothes, put a towel around his waist, and washed his disciples' feet. He denied himself. And he served others. And the Bible says that this is love. This is what, Je this is what it says of Jesus in Philippians 2. Let each of us, let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who... Though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. You know what the Bible says after that? 
It says, therefore, God has given him the name that is above every name, that in the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Jesus said, the least shall be greatest, the first shall be last. This is the heart of Christianity. This is the essence of Christian love. You want to be great in faith, great, uh, mighty in love, mighty in Christ? The way up is down. You make yourself nothing. Let me tell you something. God will lift you up. Jesus Christ, who had the farthest to go down, went down further than any of us ever could. And now he's at the highest place. And there he will remain forever. The less you consider yourself in this world, the greater you'll be in the next. Love is the unyielding posture of heart to be for the eternal good of another, even at the expense of one's self. We can say, especially at the expense of one's self. What is it? What is it to you? 20, 30, 40, 50, 60, 70, 80 years of self-denial. Because your sin's not yourself anyways. It's a false self. It's a broke self. It's a, it's a, it's a cor- corroding, uh, a decaying self. That's not you anyways. Why not deny it for 50, 60, 70, 80 years for an eternity of joy in the presence of Christ? Why not? We can get over ourselves and love other people because love is the unyielding posture of heart to be for the eternal good of another even at the expense of oneself. And I conclude with this story. And of course, one of the most brilliant examples of this kind of love that I'm talking about is, um, is mission work. When Paul says that he endures all things for the sake of the elect, what he's saying is he's saying, I will, I will endure anything for those who will believe the gospel of Jesus Christ. And I will endure and I will go. Because that's what love does. It <laughs> It, it risks. It steps out at the chance that my temporal life in this world may be more difficult, more hard, yes, even shortened, but it's a risk I'm willing to take for the sake of the love of other people that they may know Christ. In April 1942, Jacob DeShazer was a bombardier, I don't know how to pronounce that, in the Doolittle Raid over Japan. With four other crewmen, he bailed out. Two of them were executed. The others spent the rest of the war, three years and four months, in prison camps. They were beaten, tortured, and starved. At some point, DeShazer asked for a Bible. They brought him one, allowing to keep it for just three weeks. He later wrote, I eagerly began to read its pages. I discovered that God had given me new spiritual eyes. That's the Holy Spirit. That's new birth. God had given me new spiritual eyes that when I looked at the enemy officers and guards who had starved and beaten my companions and me so cruelly, I found my bitter hatred for them changed to loving pity. The Shazer survived and he dedicated his life to mission work in Japan. One of his converts was Misuo Fuchida, who was a lead pilot in the Pearl Harbor attack. Fushida became an evangelist. 
and DeShazer died in Salem, Oregon at 95 years old. That's what Christian love is. Love believes all things, love hopes all things, love bears all things, love endures all things. God didn't give up on Jacob DeShazer. Gave him a Bible in a prison camp. Saved him. Because, of, because God didn't give up on Jacob, Jacob didn't give up on the Japanese. And it saved Fruchita, who led who knows how many people to Christ. Love is the unyielding posture of heart to be for the eternal good of another, even at the expense of oneself. Especially at the expense of oneself. So I close with this invitation. You, by faith, can receive the power of God in your life today. I pray that the Spirit of God right now is working in the hearts of everyone in this room, purifying, cleansing, sanctifying, working in us, working, tilling the ground of our hearts so that we all might walk out of this room more loving than we have before. But it's only possible through the power of the Holy Spirit. So if there's anyone in this room who has not turn from their sins and look to the crucified and risen Lord who died for our sins and who rose from the dead giving us the hope of forgiveness of sins and life everlasting you can turn to him today you can believe in him today you can trust in him today and have your sins forgiven and have new life born in you by the spirit of God and you can for the first time in your life know what it's like to have love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control.